Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to our series on American history. This will be the 32nd podcast in what constitutes the college equivalent of American History One. In the 31st podcast on U.S. history, we looked at our first constitutional crisis with the executive branch, with the first president of the United States to die in office, William Henry Harrison, and the backlash against the vice president who then assumed the presidency by taking the oath of office and doing, in retrospect, what our founding fathers had intended, even though John Tyler, our next president of the United States, would pay a dear price for that because of that he insisted on being called Mr. President. And it was the right thing to do, again, as we talked about, because internationally, our allies, and especially our enemies, needed to know that there was a commander-in-chief in the executive office, in the Oval Office at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So we looked at his presidency, and then we got into 1844 election, which would then be uh, James Knox Polk, our first dark horse president of the United States to be elected. And we're going to look at that a few and review his presidency a few podcasts later. Rather, what we're going to do today in the 32nd and in the next podcast is taking getting out of Washington, D.C., getting away from the presidency and from Congress, and seeing how in the early to mid-1800s, and eventually even getting closer to the American Civil War in 1861, when that starts, how was Jane and John Q. public living? What was it like to be an American at this particular time, especially with the onset of two revolutions that dovetail one another? Generally, most people, when I were to ask about a revolution that hit in the 1800s, the average person would rightfully say, well, the Industrial Revolution. And, there's, and it's not a wrong answer. But the fact of the matter is the Industrial Revolution encompassed so much new technology that for our purposes of seeing how the Industrial Revolution affected the burgeoning United States, we're going to see how that affects John and Jane Q. Public by dividing it into two revolutions that dovetail with one another. The first is the transportation revolution, and then the second one we'll take a look at in the broader context is the industrial revolution. So in the we're with the uh, transportation revolution. Prior to any form of a combustion engine attempting to get a product from point A to point B, Prior to this, that's only going to be done generally either by the human being walking things from point A to point B or in the backs of animals, a skiff on a river, water transportation, etc. So let's begin with a quick review in terms of water transportation. It was no surprise that businesses developed near waterways. Well, water clearly is a very, very cheap 
efficient, and generally reliable form of transportation, we have to remember that by and large, they were at the mercy of the water currents and the wind currents, as well as how deep or shallow the waters might be. So there were some variables that could affect the businesses that were developing or established by this point near the waterways. Again, whether they be the ocean itself, lakes, canals, any other waterway, a stream, a river. Well, Robert Fulton, with his development of what we would eventually call the steamboat, by taking a combustion engine and allowing it to turn a paddle wheel, that could more effectively travel not only on the high waters anywhere, but the significant part is that it could allow transportation to effectively happen with much more predictability and reliability upstream. As a result, shipment costs were greatly reduced. More goods could now be bought and sold at far greater distances than ever thought possible before. So is it no surprise that once that engine was attached to that paddle wheel, and from there, more and more paddle boats would be built, sold, used by the business community, as well as by private merchants as well and private individuals, it would be no surprise that that would kick off a boon in the United States of building and or establishing what we would call a canal system. Unlike a stream, a river, or any other natural flowing body of water, a canal by definition is human-made. Canal implies, so when you see a canal on a map, that implies that that was a waterway or is a waterway that was not put there by Mother Nature, but rather was put there by humans in order to connect either two other waterways or at least connect a particular area to be able to access a major river or stream. From there, the one that we'll take a look at that clearly exemplifies just how important the canal system was, was, of course, the Erie Canal, which opened in 1825. This allowed New York residents access to the West by connecting the Hudson River to the Great Lakes, specifically Lake Erie, and then out to the Atlantic Ocean. So from Lake Erie through the canal to the Hudson River and now to the Atlantic Ocean. For the first time in that 363-mile journey, waters of the Great Lakes were directly contacting now the waters of the Atlantic Ocean artificially by means of a human-made canal. The canal itself was vast. It was the largest construction project in the last 4,000 years. And with those 363 miles, not a single engineer was used to actually begin, much less carry out the project. And that's not to minimize the amount of work or the amount of earth that was dug up. By the time the canal was finished, there was enough landfill that was removed to create the canal to fill the Rose Bowl 26,000 times. Out west, the prices for commodities now dropped at an astonishingly 90%. So a shovel that once cost $40 out west now could be picked up for between $4 and $5. So from an economic standpoint, there was practically no downside to the canal. Over the years since 1825, the canal has been widened, it has been deepened, 
More and more locks have been established in order to handle larger and larger shipments. However, that also would bring the downside to America's canal system. Because maybe, just maybe, Mother Nature had her reasons for not allowing certain waterways to be connected. Because now when we have these ships that travel around the ocean, bringing in their uh, ocean water in order to form the ballast on the ship. In other words, when a ship is completely loaded with cargo, it by and large can be safely, if especially where the cargo is put, it can safely balance on the water. But when a ship begins to empty all of its cargo and its fuel begins to start running out, these massive ships will take in ocean water in order to level themselves and balance themselves. When that water is taken in in the ocean, and then the goods are traveling through the Hudson River Erie Canal into the Great Lakes, as the cargo was unloaded, also the ballast is unloaded and then swapped later on by taking in lake water. The problem with that is that, as we know, these ships just don't take in the water itself. It takes in all the microscopic organisms. It takes in lots of small fish, eggs of larger fish, and then transports them literally to another body of water, in some cases over a half a mile away. That's the reason why the Great Lakes have such a major problem with life forms that are not indigenous to our Great Lakes system. The Asian carp, for example, that it's working its way up the Mississippi River through the INM Canal and eventually into the Chicago River, which is now only miles away from invading Lake Michigan. And once those Asian carp are into Lake Michigan, by extension, they're in all five Great Lakes. The amount of damage that they do by eating up the fish supply that other indigenous fish need to survive is incalculable to how damaging this can be. The sea lampreys that literally look like a snake in the water that attach themselves to the side of a fish and then suck its blood and other body fluids out, 90% of the time killing its host fish. These are running basically unchecked. We have problems with shells and mollusks and others that are forming and clogging our pipeways. So uh, that said, for our in, uh, incoming freshwater pipes, the way they're being clogged by these mollusks and other types of shellfish, this is just so, literally just the tip of the iceberg of the major problems that the Great Lakes is, is uh, facing. However, clearly there's no way that these people back in 1825 could, could have known just how damaging this was eventually going to be. Another downside of this also took place with the establishing of the Erie Canal, and that would be the stereotyping of the Irish. This is when the Irish begin to start getting a bad rap, and Irish people were easy to identify just by their last names. An MC or an O apostrophe, for example, was clearly the sign that this was an Irish immigrant. The negative stereotyping is that don't bother paying the Irish because all they do is blow their money at the bar, drink themselves to sleep at the end of the night, and then show up late for work the next morning. Basically don't do uh, decent work because they're too tired and hungover, but they demand their pay only to go back to the bar. This is where the stereotyping of the Irish began, and it would last for decades. As I've mentioned before, when I introduce myself, my last name, Kinsella, K-I-N-S-E-L-L-A, 
that's actually going down the line of my ancestors, not my original name. Yes, I am half Irish from my father's side, of course, bringing the name to Kinsella to all eight of our eight of us uh, Kinsella kids. However, down the line, back into the 1800s, when the my ancestors came over, mind you, you don't have all of the fancy passports and paperwork that we have today to verify one's ethnicity and where they came from. It was a lot easier to work your way in incognito, literally with nobody even aware of it, especially if you came in under the radar on cargo ships and then worked your way off the ships into the United States and boom, you stayed here. However, the moment that they said their last name was O apostrophe or MC, they were automatically labeled, which is the reason why the name Kinsella is actually derived from Okinsella, O apostrophe K-I-N-S-E-L-A. However, if you drop the O apostrophe in the pronunciation and just add a second L, Kinsella, oh, well, that could be Italian. Perhaps that could be Spanish. Regardless, my ancestors didn't care. As long as it gave them a job, call me practically anything you want. And that's where the name Kinsella stuck. So just uh, uh, elaborating here on the impact and the importance of the Erie Canal as an example of the many canals that will be dug throughout the United States. In terms of transportation, we're also going to see how we're going to take that steam engine and we're going to bring that onto land. And we're going to put it on a set of steel rails to be able to take the equivalent of a ship that's on land and be able to see if we can get goods from point A to point B the same way. This is part of the reason why, sadly, there's a myth that the automobile was invented first, then the railroad was, when in fact it was the exact opposite. I'm not trying to say that railroads are simple products or simple pieces of machinery, far from it. But developing an engine to move a vehicle, an established set of rails, by definition, is a simpler design with an automobile where you have to get into an advanced steering mechanism. With the railroads, as long as the two rails are equally distant apart and handling the wheelbase or the length of the axle of the locomotive, as far as those rails can be laid, that railroad engine can go. So it was a great idea, but there was also a lot of fear with it. Mind you, with Robert Fulton's steamship or steamboats, it's not that Fulton was significantly increasing speed in order to get from one port to the next. It was not a drastic improvement in speed, but it was an establishment of consistency in speed. So the speed of the steamboat was not directly dependent on the, current, on the strength of the water current or of the winds that day. So while the steamboat might not have been able to travel much faster, if at all, it could consistently be relied upon as long as the fuel was there and the engine was working properly and that paddle wheel was spinning, there was a lot more reliability. Schedules could now be set up when one could expect the next shipment to come in from point B to your point A, for example. So while the steamboat made inroads that way, the railroad by extension is going to do the same thing, except Without having now to push all of that water out of the way to be able to progress down the river, on land, that steam engine is going to be able to put that vehicle and allow it to travel much faster than the 
on average highest speed of 15 miles an hour by any form of a land animal. And the question is though, could humans actually travel at speeds greater than 15 miles an hour and live to tell about it? Think about it. We have never been confronted with that conundrum in human history. We looked at that steam engine on those on that platform resting on a massive set of wheels, realizing that the more fuel, whether it be wood or coal, that we put into that engine to burn, that the faster this vehicle can go. The brake system, that was already established. They were confident that they could slow the engine down and eventually bring it to a halt. Not fast, but reliably, and it could be done. But what about the top speed? Humans, again, had no And never had to face this. They had no idea how fast can a human being travel and live to tell about it. Now, we roll our eyes and think, my God, they were worried about doing 20, 30 miles an hour. These people, can you imagine the looks on their faces if you had them sit down in the driver's seat of any automobile today and point the speedometer out and tell them that those numbers, 40, 50, 70, 90, 100, and if you're in a real fancy sport car, well past 100 miles an hour, that that's how fast this car could go, they'd probably pass out on you. (laughs) Who could blame them, right? Because they had no knowledge. They had no confirmation, nothing they could point to in human history to say, yeah, we can go that fast and live to tell about it. So that said, it was going to be, these vehicles were going to travel faster slowly, not putting the pedal to the metal, as they say, just to see how fast this thing could go. Ironically enough, though, if you think about it, their fears were actually well-founded because they, at the end of the day, were right. Humans do have a maximum speed that they can tolerate depending upon what the vehicle is doing. It would not be, of course, for well over a century later that we found out when we started putting jet engines onto our airplanes that having putting a human being in the cockpit of a plane doing 1,400 miles an hour, again, no problem. But the moment that that pilot realizes that they have to start fighting with another enemy's pilot's air force, now suddenly speed is an issue. Because when the plane has to, of course, bank to starboard or port, in other words, to turn right or left, there's where the hangup's going to be as we cannot handle the G-force. So you might say it's not really speed that's given us the problem. It's the G-forces. Yes, but we're experiencing those G-forces based on what? Humans traveling that fast, right? However, it's not, again, just to clarify that they can't go 1,400 miles an hour. Look at the top speed of the space shuttle when it is taking off and then coming back into Earth's orbit. Well over 16,000 miles an hour. Why can the humans tolerate it? Because it's a slow, very, very long arc into outer space or from outer space back into the Earth's atmosphere. Clearly issues, though, that people hit back at this time don't have to worry about. So with between the development of the railroad and the steamboat, let's see then how the railroad makes its improvements in human society. Well, once again, this was not an American idea. The idea actually originated in England. However, it would be the United States that would set the worldwide standard in in terms of rail width becoming an industry standard. By rail width, I mean the center point of one rail to the center point of the other rail just opposite it. 
in the United States, we would establish and it would become worldwide at four feet, eight and a half inches or 56 and a half inches. Now you might be giving me the hairy eyeball wondering there, wait a minute, where did they come up with that odd number? Well, once again, this technology is not 100% new with every facet of it. If we're going to build a carriage, we're going to build a car, a rail car, an engine, would it be no surprise that they're going to be looking at the modern day horse carriage to, in order to use that as a template? So the average horse carriage, the distance between the two wheels, whether it be a chariot with one set of wheels or a full wagon, was four feet, eight and a half inches roughly. So again, we the, the dimensions is nothing new. However, it is the standard throughout the world today. Please take my word on that. However, if you don't want to and you want to verify this, please do so online or at your local library. Don't try taking a tape measure and actually measuring a distance between two sets of rails. That's the last thing I need on my reviews is one of Kinsella's listeners getting picked off by a train trying to measure the distance between one rail and the next. Trust me, it's 56 and a half inches. However, should you, very bold individual listeners out there, have the opportunity to actually get to a set of railroad tracks where you're confident that they're either no longer used, the railroad has been abandoned, if you could see and put your uh, face very close to the rail itself, you would see something that's not commonly observed by the human eye. On the surface, it seems like the railroad rails themselves are perfectly flat. They're not. It's, an, it's actually a significant curve or arc from one side of the tiny rail to the other side, which is just a matter of inches in the thickness of an individual rail. The reason for that is what allows railroads to travel so consistently and in some cases so cheaply and move thousands of tons of weight. The reason being is that for the rail being actually arced, is that the wheel itself, which also is not perfectly flat to the rail, the amount of surface of those massive train wheels, whether it be the big boy Union Pacific 4884 massive largest locomotive ever built, or a tiny little 040 little putt-putt engine, switcher engine that works in the rail yard, the amount of surface area between the rail itself and the wheel is literally less than the diameter of a dime. That's what allows it to travel with so little resistance on steel versus steel. To travel over that is the reason why, again, we can move so much weight so efficiently, as long as, again, that uh, surface area contact is as small as possible. As these railroads develop, you'll eventually hear terms like a class one, two, and three railroad. Once again, that has nothing to do with the distance between the rails. That's a worldwide standard. But what that means is how high is the rail off of the ground? Your massive class one locomotives that can be traveling at speeds greater than 90 miles an hour, especially when those railroad tracks begin to go on an embankment and turn, those rails have to be a lot thicker or higher off of the ground, the profile is, than the class three railroads. So when I also said too that it's a worldwide standard, up until the 1930s, that was the case. However, the Soviet Union, starting in the late 30s and early 40s, began to start 
modifying Russia's rail system under the leadership of Joseph Stalin, he was nervous, especially as Adolf Hitler began to use the railroads more and more. In fact, by September 1st, 1939, when the world is introduced to the Blitzkrieg, we generally tend to get wrapped up. Blitzkrieg, yes, a combination of an air force and the same country's navy and army. However, the key to Blitzkrieg actually is an established working railroad system to be able to get the soldiers from A to B as quickly as possible. Stalin was no dummy on that. And after the invasion of Poland, Operation Case White, and then the invasion of France, Operation Case Yellow, when Hitler invaded the Benelux countries into France using the railroad system, that's when Stalin put into overdrive, bringing Russia's rail system from the four feet, eight and a half inches down to 36 inches, modifying the railroads themselves to make them narrower, not nearly as much of an or an expensive of a job as trying to go back to the international standard. For that reason, Russia's railroad system to this day is still 36 inches. I had the opportunity to travel from uh, Far East Asia and Southern China and I needed to travel to Eastern Europe, specifically, or actually in, in Western Europe on the uh, Western side of Germany. And I was tempted to take the railroad system just to go through the experience of having the rail cars lifted off of the old wheel sets of four feet, eight and a half inches, putting them on the Russian rail, uh, wheel sets of 36 inches. That same rail car then travels through Russia until eventually it comes into contact with the Western rail system and those cars, carriages are literally lifted off of the wheels and put onto the international wheel sets and off you go to your final destination. It would have been an experience to do that. Unfortunately, my time didn't allow me to take advantage of it. But no surprise though, that with that rail with being an industry standard, our railroads are gonna debut of course on the East Coast. As they begin to work their way further West, it's also no surprise that eventually the United States is going to be looking for a central location out west that can be a, a hub for our the goods to be able to be brought from the East Coast to a center, uh, central point where they, that could then be loaded onto railroads to go to the West Coast. And that city, of course, was going to be Chicago. It was close to being St. Louis, but Chicago would be would grab that simply because of its location right on the edges of the Great Lakes. Chicago, therefore, would become an absolutely indispensable city for engineers and the railroad system itself. It would become indispensable, however, would also become the most hated city by railroad engineers. The reason being is that when one travels from the East Coast almost anywhere along the eastern seaboard to Chicago, takes on average in modern-day locomotives using the modern-day rail system about two to three days. To go from Chicago anywhere on the West Coast takes anywhere from four to five days. However, it doesn't take a railroad by and large less than three full days to work their way through Chicago's unbelievably congested spaghetti soup of rail lines that go throughout the city. Not only freight lines, but passenger lines themselves. I was part of this system as I used it for over 10 years when I worked at DePaul University and took the rail system from 
the south side to the north uh, to uh, downtown Chicago. As the trains would come in from all locations, the north and the western suburbs, all the way into that center point in the middle of the city. For that reason, at one time, there were seven different passenger rail systems just in the city itself. That does not include the inner city's uh, rail system called the Chicago L or subway. So these would be just some of the challenges that major cities like Chicago, New York City, and Los Angeles would have to figure out. How to manage the rail lines safely with people beginning to start moving into the city for jobs due to industrialism. However, the railroad also gave people, not only nationwide, but eventually worldwide, another challenge. Because for the first time, humans are traveling across the face of the earth on land faster than they ever have before, something seemed to be happening to our concept of time. In other words, when I left my hometown, say, of Boston, and I traveled to Chicago, when I traveled on horseback or stagecoach, and I know that the sun set at 6.30, I traveled so slowly that I never recognized the fact that I'm actually traveling west where the light hangs on a little bit longer than it does east. When we're traveling no faster than a horse can run, we never recognize the issues with the curvature of the earth and the fact that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Now that we can travel from Boston to Chicago, and what once took several days can now take less than a half a day, something seemed to be going awry with our sunrises and sunsets. Because if the sun set in Boston at 6.30 and I left at 12.30, six hours later by rail, I'm in Chicago, for example, and it's 6.30, why is the sun still high in the sky? Something had to be done of our concept of the understanding of time. When it comes to the, so we'll look at this in the next podcast, and there's another one too I'd like you to think about. How, how many of you have ever heard the term, hey, don't date so-and-so or don't hang out with those kids because they are from the wrong side of the tracks? Is that just a play on words or is there really a wrong side of the tracks in the United States then as well as today? Tune into the next podcast to discuss that.